Opinions expressed on Mountain Talk do not necessarily reflect those of WMMT, Apple Shop Incorporated, or the station's funders. Hello and welcome to this edition of Mountain Talk Monday. I am your host, Kelly Haywood, and today I am here with three folks to talk about forest farming. So you might be thinking, what is forest farming? But first, let me introduce our guests and we will jump right in because there is quite a bit to talk about. Our guests are working with a coalition called the Appalachian Beginning Forest Farmer Coalition, and they are representatives of some organizations that came together to develop and form this coalition to help folks who are interested in forest farming as a means to supplement their income or eventually replace an income here in Appalachia. So this might be one of the many marbles in the jar, as Tammy Owens (laughs) told me earlier, that uh, could help us as we begin to diversify our economy. So speaking of Tammy, we have as guest Tammy Owens, who is a forest farmer and a community member. She's also a clinical and medicinal herbalist, and she's here to talk with us about her experience. Welcome, Tammy. Well, thank you very much. And I have with me today also Emily Lockneat, who is the Agroforestry Program Manager for Appalachian Sustainable Development. And also David Grimsley, who is the founder of Taproot Botanical Alliance and knows quite a bit about Chinese medicinal herbs. Welcome both of you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Let's begin at the beginning. The term forest farming is not one that is thrown around at the dinner table very often. In fact, I have only heard it in very specific settings when I am learning about where I might find mushrooms for a salad or in talking to people about ginseng and the future of ginseng in our area. I know it's about to be harvested to the point of extinction (laughs) in this area. So let's just begin there. Tammy, maybe we could begin with you since you are doing it. What is forest farming? Forest farming for me now is a little bit different than I remember years ago when my mother and my grandparents and and especially my great-grandmother were farming the forest and and I think if people look back years ago to their grandparents and before them that's how the people the folks in this area raised their food the only place they had to grow whether it's corn or a big garden is sometimes on the side of the mountainside I can remember my great-grandmother in particular who probably was one of the first herbalists in our family going way back Granny Pricey Jane she was a mountain wise woman I can remember when I was a little girl that and following her into the mountains and where she had actually planted herbs and things and was cultivating and caring for patches of golden seal and ginseng and the cohoshes and the sorrels and all those things that she needed when people would come to her because there were no doctors back in that time for healing and for care and for medicine. That's what my great-grandmother was doing, was farming the forest. And 
all the foods and stuff that they would gather there. So forest farming for me is not a new concept. It's just a concept I think that we have forgotten through the years. And this is something that is very near and dear to my heart and very important to me, especially in this day and time. And it's something that we can get back to. So yes, I am in the process of a more intentional forest farming. And that's something I want to help the people in my area to get to know again and to become familiar with. So that's why I'm here today is to share that. Let's think just a second because I'm 38 years old and all the farming that I have known other than the family garden in the backyard has been if you go to Indiana and you see these huge patches of one crop. So I think a lot of people my age and younger, when they think of farming, that's what they think of. If you think about forest farming, that is, I believe, a completely new concept for a lot of people because when I look back at my great-great-grandmother's garden, there was a lot of logging going on in the region at the time. So our hillsides were almost bare with being logged and they would cut steps or cow paths and then you would plant the corn or whatever you had on those stepped out areas. So you're not talking about a forest without trees when you're talking about forest farming, right? That's right. right. And forest farming is intentionally managing crops that grow under a forest canopy. So it's more than just foraging for fruits and herbs, but it's really looking at how to maintain those populations over time. And so being a little bit more deliberate about how you grow the herbs and what that patch is going to look like 50 years from now. Are we talking mostly medicinal or is this a way to also provide food for the table? Most of the herbs that we have as part of our program right now are medicinal. I can name a few if you'd like of, of the western herbs that we might be familiar with. There's ginseng that we've been talking about, but there's golden seal and black cohosh, blue cohosh, false unicorn, Solomon seal, stone root, blood root. There are these herbs that that you might remember from childhood. You know, some of these are the first flowers in the spring um, that you see, and you know, you wake up in the morning and you think that it snowed on the ground, and then you look and you see these pretty little white flowers smiling back at you, and that's the blood root. All of these are medicinal herbs, and they're not all necessarily used for human consumption. Uh, Bloodroot, for instance, can be used in cattle feed as a great supplement for the antibiotics that they put in cow feed and also is a appetite enhancer. It's a good thing uh, for the feedlots, if you choose to farm that way, to add bloodroot to your, your mix. A lot of the others are used by clinical herbalists in the area and all throughout the country, if not the world. We all know, because it's so popular, that ginseng is, you know, wild ginseng is going for 900 to to $1,000 a pound right now, fresh. And it's hard to compete with that. But honestly, it's not even the most important herb. It's not going to save your life. It might give you a little energy here or there, like a caffeine boost. What we're really talking about here are creating medicinal patches that might come in handy one day for your family and your community. When you're talking about growing these herbs, you're not necessarily talking about you becoming an herb doctor, but more selling these herbs to herb doctors or to companies that put them in capsules. Is that what we're talking about here? 
Yeah, mostly about on the cultivation end is an opportunity to diversify your income. But the more you grow them, the more you'll learn about them and come to appreciate them. And you might start appreciating the herbal side and using using them yourself. One thing I really appreciate with what Emily and everybody that, that's doing that's helping, as a forest farmer myself, they have contacted Mountain Rose Herbs, which is a huge botanical, you know, herbal company, massive worldwide. And so for me as a farmer, I need a way to sell the product that I'm growing. So I'm extremely excited about that, whereas a huge company like Mountain Rose Herbs will need, say, 200 pounds of cohosh as a minimum weight order. There's no way that I can individually produce that much of a cohosh over one season. But if there's a coalition of us, a group of forest farmers, which this is one of the main reasons we're here, is to find those people, then this person grows 10, this 10, 20 here and there. We can come up with those 20 pounds of, of cohosh that Mountain Rose Herbs needs for us to be able to sell to them. What Emily and David are doing is giving people like me that opportunity to have a market that we can sell to. And, and I'm sure they can talk more about the uh, certification that I want to make sure that I get under that place like Mountain Rose Herbs requires or needs to make sure that we're selling a good, solid, clean, reputable product, a sustainable product that people aren't out in the woods gathering this stuff, that it's actually being forest farmed by families and individuals or whatever else. That's just a huge thing for me because that gives me an avenue then to sell this as an actual farmer just as when I lived in Kansas City and I grew organic vegetables and fruits I needed a way to sell those things so they're providing an avenue for us as the small forest farmer then to be able to earn that income and at a, a much higher rate than say a forager would, that would grow out and gather these in the wild where they would only get, say, $12 a pound for black cohosh, well, possibly we could double that selling to uh, Mountain Rose Herbs, and as long as we have the certification and we're working as a coalition and as a unit. So that is what the structure of the Appalachian Beginning Forest Farmer Coalition is. The Appalachian Beginning Forest Farmer Coalition is a group of different organizations, nonprofits, and um, universities, people that have a lot of expertise in growing these herbs and also um, connecting people with markets. We're attempting to bring these resources from outside in different parts of Appalachia to people in this region through training and also in the end to help them actually access the markets. So you're not looking for only people who are already doing this, but also people who are interested in learning about the process and maybe becoming themselves a forest farmer. Yeah, I mean, we think that the mountains in this region are really special. They're capable of growing these herbs where that can't be grown in many places of the country. So that's a great resource that we have here that's not really developed for this purpose and growing herbs is a great way to still maintain forest canopy. You can still do some logging with it, but you're working with the forest to grow a product over time. 
And one thing to point out is that we're not just talking about herbs per se, but there's also mushrooms that can be grown and eaten or sold for a very nice price grown in the in, under the forest canopy. Things like shiitake, which is a Japanese mushroom that grows on white oak logs. All you have to do or, about this time of year is, is cut some, some of your branches if you have white oak growing on your land and inoculate them with the mushroom spawn, which is very cheap. In about six months to a year, you'll get a flush that you'll be able to get about 16 to $18 a pound um, for shiitakes. There's other mushrooms that um, you can wild harvest sustainably, such as reishi, which grows on the dying hemlock trees around here. That's a, a very great source of income and you won't be over harvesting them even if you take them all because the the fungus is actually in the tree the fruit is just the the only thing that you can visibly see and harvest one of the main things that i've seen really taking off around here is learning to grow shiitake mushrooms uh, i know a lot of the extension offices in the counties have had workshops to teach people how to grow shiitake mushrooms and also how to forage mushrooms so that's something I think that has been on people's radar. And being someone who has used herbs quite a bit myself and bought bulk herbs, I'm really familiar with mountain rose herbs. If, if you can buy from them, you're getting a quality product that lasts a long time. So I, I'm really familiar with their standards just from also being able to handle their product and seeing the difference between that and something that I can just go to any store and buy. Another thing that I really, really liked, and I can just imagine seeing this on the label, is they have on the label where that herb was grown. And I can just think of seeing the names of our towns on those labels. We know that there's a market for mushrooms. What is the herb market? Who's using herbs? Right now, herbalism has really gained a resurgence in our country as people are looking to alternatives in their health care and they really want to take charge in their health care. And so they're, they're seeing alternative doctors um, just to get a second or third opinion on whatever ails them before they get whatever treatment allopathic medicine requires. Chinese medicine is the fastest growing health care industry in the country right now. There are Chinese medicinal schools all over this country, and it's not Chinese people practicing this. It's, it's Americans like you and me that are learning the modalities of Chinese medicine, which has been around for over 5,000 years, and it has been proven to really work. And it's slowly being incorporated within our Western medicine. You're, you're seeing it more and more in hospitals where they, they have an acupuncturist or they'll have an herbalist on staff to help patients that ask for an alternative treatment. American Chinese medicinal herbalists don't want to buy outside of this country if they don't have to. We happen to live in a place that isn't as polluted. We have wonderful human rights standards. And honestly, just shipping the herb from one place to the other and knowing that it's the herb that you're getting in that package is really important if these herbalists want to heal their patients. They want to know who's growing this stuff. Just like the local food movement, you see these farmer's markets popping up all over the place. Herbalists want to know the farmer. They, they want to know the organization. And we can be the front for that because we're going to trust that our farmers are going to do this stuff correctly. When you're talking about Chinese herbs, these are plants native to China. They're plants native to China, but it's interesting because we happen to live 
at uh, the same latitude and altitude as this medicinal belt that runs through China, where the majority of medicinal herbs are gr grown and harvested, both in the wild and in, under simulated wild harvest cultivation. We have a lot of analog species that are native within the Appalachia that relate to the Chinese herb specimens. It's wonderful because they grow so well here. And I'm not talking about introducing kudzu or anything that's going to take over. <laughs> Though kudzu is a great medicinal herb. Uh, I'll put a plug in for kudzu. But we've been experimenting for the last five years in Virginia growing Chinese medicinal herbs to see if they have any invasive properties. And we haven't found any that do, as they don't in China either, but they grow very well here. And Chinese practitioners really like the quality that they're seeing from the stuff that's been harvested. So are these herbs that, without any special training, you should be using yourself? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's sort of fallacy or some trouble where we're headed. I've seen sometimes like on Facebook or on forums, you'll see people throwing out, they'll want a natural remedy for something. And then you've got all these people saying, well, I heard this and I heard that and, and I just cringe because there's so much misinformation out there. And what people don't realize is that the original doctors were herbalists and there were very few of them were in apothecaries and people would come, you know, these were people that knew what the herbs did and the medicinal constituent that you pull out of that plant. It's the same medicine that you get in pharmaceutical medicine. That's although that's synthesized a lot of times, but this is where the original medicine came from. And the average layperson doesn't understand what that medicinal constituent in a Chinese herb actually does when you ingest it in your body. So you have to have some actual training, a lot of training and understanding when you're dealing with the level of like the Chinese herbs and some of the Ayurvedic uh, medicines and things on exactly what that's going to do with the human body and ex exactly what that medicinal constituent is, is for. You know, the best medicine you can take is the medicine you make. So there's a lot of backyard herbalists. There's herbs out there that are completely safe and that I feel like everybody should be growing in their garden, whether it's calendula and chickweed for healing salves, chamomile for a calming tea, lemon balm. There's a bunch of things out there that are, are very safe and everybody should have in their backyard and learn how to use them. But when you get into actual illnesses and diseases and you are more interested in a natural type healing, that's when you know you actually need to go see a naturopath or an herbalist. Being an herbalist myself, I know what they're kind of interested in, but then understanding what the people, herbalists and, and natural doctors here in the U.S. want, then as a farmer, then we need to concentrate on those things and be able to grow them for that market, as well as for just, you know, the regular person in a household that may want some things that they want to keep in there, you know, tinctures or essential oils or whatever else. One comment I wanted to make, too, is that it's hard for people to see this in a way, but it's very easy for us to imagine in the Midwest you can grow soybeans and thousands of acres of corn, you know, and it's very easy to see that is what grows in the Midwest. We can't grow that here in Appalachia, but 
what we can grow, the medicinals and a lot of edibles where the Midwest can't. I would like to see us taking more advantage of those things. You look at a mountainside and what we can farm underneath the trees and then learn how to manage that wood lot. Things like maple trees, you know you're talking about maple syrup. We've got that here. There's so many things, a bounty of different foods and edibles as well as herbs that we can grow here that will grow nowhere else in the United States. I think that's a really good point because a lot of times, especially when we're talking about ways to diversify our economy so that that we're not dependent upon one extractive industry or one manufacturer to employ the entire community. That's all economic diversification means is that we have a choice of career paths or jobs, something to choose from. When we mention that agriculture is one option A lot of the feedback that I get is, we don't have the land for that. What is that going to look like? And then if you say small-scale farming, they're like, well, then who can afford to buy our product? Nobody's going to spend $6 for a gallon of organic milk, you know, or my organic tomatoes. When we're looking at folks who are budgeting, are really concerned about replacing an entire income, I like that you bring up what we can grow here, that there are options even within saying agriculture (laughs) as to what that looks like for us. Another nice plus about this project is that we don't expect people to just drop everything and become career farmers and career forest farmers. This is more something that they can put into the ground in their woods and, you know, mark it and walk away from it and let it grow and let it do what it's supposed to do on its own in a wild simulated environment. You know, these these aren't tomatoes that need to be babied and taken care of and pruned occasionally. These are plants that sort of want to struggle to, and that really brings out their medicinal qualities. This is something that people can have in their back pocket on their land, and it gives value to their their timbered piece of property that they might not realize they actually have. So are you saying (laughs) that it's easier to be a forest farmer than it is to be a field farmer? There is, uh, uh, that's a complicated (laughs) answer because on the one hand, yes, it's not difficult to get into, it's not a huge investment, but you do have to work to know where you're going. If you're going to make money doing this, you have to know what your markets are and you have to be willing to look into how are you going to process the herbs afterwards? And that's something that we're trying to assist people with is there's a lot of knowledge out there. There's people that have been digging ginseng for many years, who've been planting it for many years, but we want to help raise prices for some of these other herbs. We're going to be working on building a herb processing center in Duffield, Virginia. We're very excited, um, which will include some herb dryers, root washers, again, trying to help connect people with larger markets that they wouldn't be able to access otherwise. Yeah, when I was looking at the information that you sent me prior to this conversation, one of the exciting things was the herb dryer, because when I was doing foraging and things for myself, I lived in the head of a holler where two mountains 
basically came together and they all but touched like the only room was a stream then it opens up a little and my cabin set right there so it was wet all the time and when I, I would lay my herbs out on screens in my kitchen and it would take forever for them to dry and I didn't want to add heat because I did most of my things with cold infusions sometimes they wouldn't dry at all they would actually mold before they would dry mm -hmm. you know so that was so frustrating so when i saw herb dryer and that and that people would have access to that and i know some of the things that folks are working on in our community right now is a community kitchen mm -hmm. where folks can go and can their produce to then sell are we talking about a hub like this for herb farmers? Is this well, the facility you're talking about? It's similar to that in concept in that in commercial kitchens, it's sanitation is very important. And so having the capability of also processing your herbs in an environment that a lot of these buyers want to see, they want to see standards being upheld. At this point, it's not for developing that final product of a tincture or a tea blend but getting it to the point where it's dried and maybe chopped and packaged and then sold to people who want to create these and use products possibly in a commercial kitchen. And we can work with the participating farmers in this project as far as developing a farm plan. And you know, some of these crops take three, four, five, ginseng takes seven years before maturity and, and before you wanna harvest it. And so having a, a written out plan with what they intend to do once these herbs are processed, do they wanna take them back and package them under their label and sell them at, say, a farmer's market or sell them to the local ginseng buyer? Or do they want to do it under an umbrella and not have to worry about the marketing and the packaging, etc., to be sold in bulk, say, under the Appalachian harvest name? Since the beginning of the year, two abortion clinics in Kentucky and West Virginia have closed, leaving each state with just one such facility. In Ohio, the number of clinics has dropped by half in recent years, a trend abortion opponents celebrate. But as Mary Meehan reports, abortion rights advocates worry that state-level restrictions are putting the right to choose out of reach. Donna Wells walks through what's left of the EMW Women's Clinic. Oh, this is the um, sterilizer room where we wash the instruments. Sterilized medical supplies are in disarray. A light flickers on and off in a back hallway. She doesn't see the point in fixing it. And it's, as I said, it, it is what it is. At 75, she still runs 25 miles a week, but Wells is tired. I'm just going to retire at some point, probably this year. But I would like to have done that on my terms, not on Governor Bevin's terms. That would be Kentucky Governor Matt Bevin, who recently signed a law making an ultrasound a mandatory part of abortions and another prohibiting the procedure after 20 weeks. Wells' final straw was being unable to get a license from the state, but she's been battling restrictive rules for decades. You just don't have time to, to dispute all of the misinformation. In Lexington, Pastor Jared Henry and his 200-member congregation at the Lafayette Church of the Nazarene applaud Bevan's moves. The churchyard, less than two miles from the clinic, is filled with white crosses representing babies not born. He often joined the weekly protest at the clinic. All that they did was kill babies there. Every Thursday and Friday, 
And so I think that our city, our state, our world is better off with, even if it's one less, praise be to God. The Supreme Court decided Roe v. Wade in 1973, and Wells began providing services the following year. She started the Lexington Clinic in 1989. At that time, she says, abortion was a widely available medical option. That's all changed. Slowly, doctors stopped doing abortions. Then, she says, there weren't enough doctors to train the next generation. What I believe we see happening is Roe v. Wade, it doesn't matter if they overturn it or not. If they have enough restrictions on abortions, what's a right if you can't access it? Shortly after Wells announced she was closing, the Canal Surgical Center in Charleston, West Virginia, also closed. That left Sharon Lewis at the Women's Health Services, also in Charleston, leading the last clinic in her state. What it could do is send us back to the days when women died because they had unintended pregnancies. Earlier this year, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention issued a report showing pregnancy-related deaths in the United States doubled between 1987 and 2013. Dr. Caitlin Gertz is vice president for research at Ibis Reproductive Health. She says it's difficult to find a firm cause and effect. The top causes of maternal deaths cited by the CDC include chronic conditions like heart disease. But she said other research has shown the lack of access to an abortion can affect a woman's health. Substantial physical health, um, mental health, and socioeconomic impacts of being denied a wanted abortion. Pastor Henry says with the clinic closing, his focus may shift to greater support of foster care and adoption. We're not here to beat people up. God can forgive, and so let's move forward. But Henry says some people in his congregation recently took to the road to protest in Louisville at Kentucky's last remaining clinic. For the Ohio Valley Resource, I'm Mary Meehan in Lexington, Kentucky. The Ohio Valley Resource is made possible with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and WMMT. You're listening to Mountain Talk Monday, and I'm your host, Kelly Haywood, and I'm here today talking with Tammy Owens, who is a forest farmer and a herbalist, clinical medicinal herbalist. I am here also with Emily Lockneat, the Agroforestry Program Manager for Appalachian Sustainable Development, and David Grimsley. He's a expert on Chinese medicinals and the founder of Taproot Botanical Alliance. Real fast, maybe I should just give a little history behind how we came up with this hub concept. Several months ago, I contacted Emily at Appalachian Sustainable Development, and I said, I have a really good idea about creating medicinal herb processing facility that we could build and then other communities up and down Appalachia could emulate that are outside of the processing area for the proposed plant. And Emily said, it's amazing that you're getting in touch with me right now because we've just received a grant to do something right up that alley. And so we've been working on this since then for the last several months to sort of iron it out. What we're really looking for are interested growers who would participate in our project. We're not making any money off of you. We're not, we're not coming here to fleece the people of Appalachia. We're grant-driven. So the food aggregator in Duffield, Virginia, called Appalachian Harvest, people from all around bring vegetables to this place, and they're sold under the Appalachian Harvest name, and they're paid. 
they're reserving a little corner of this huge facility for the processing facility of these medicinal herbs that will have the dryer, have sinks, have choppers and, and root washers. It's all very exciting and, and quite serendipitous how it's all come together. And it's something that we really believe in. And we believe that this is a part of, of our culture as, as Appalachians that we need to embrace and, and really run with as an economy. When I was getting interested in it, there was a lot of people that was really interested in how I learn how to identify the herbs that I do. I like to mention this because this is so much part of our history. And when we talk about being green and sustainable and managing the forests and things like that, a lot of times we think about environmentalism and that's really important one thing to remember is that as we're diversifying our economy and as the coal industry is naturally declining, you know, due to automation and alternative energy sources that are much cheaper <laughs> to get our hands on than coal, we're not looking at something that is against the other. These things can develop together. And one really awesome example and how I learned most of what I know about herbs is from my dad. And he actually is an environmental engineer who worked his way up as a coal miner to that point. And part of his job is reclaiming strip mines. So he would take me through the woods and teach me all the rocks and all the herbs and all the animals that we could find. And at six, seven, eight years old, I was turned free for the day and could go wherever I wanted in the woods. My mom and dad had no clue where I was <laughs> and couldn't find me if they wanted to, <laughs> you know. Uh, but he had done the work prior to teach me how to be safe in that environment. So this is our lifeblood. And I know most of the kids in my area grew up the same way. So we're talking about something that can really come natural to us. And you mentioned the Appalachian Harvest Food Hub, and this segment of it is the Herb Hub. So that is a name that folks might be familiar with. If someone wants to use the equipment at the Herb Hub or learn more about forest farming, who do they get in contact with? How do they reach you and, and see what's out there and what's available for them to access right now? Well, I would say two things. Um, they can get in contact with me at Appalachian Sustainable Development, and our phone number is 276-623-1121. And I would also suggest that people check out the Appalachian Beginning Forest Farmers Coalition website that's AppalachianForestFarmers.org. And you can register there and you'll get on the mailing list for all the events coming up. There's a lot of really great training sessions you can attend and demonstrations and great YouTube series about how to plant and process and forums. And so it's, we're trying to help build up the network. There's people all throughout the region that have knowledge about these plants and we're trying to connect them. Part of this project is really organizing the farmers into communities. You know, you know your neighbor, and if several of you within the same community are growing herbs with this project, or just growing herbs in general, your knowledge base is going to come from having conversations with those people and walking the woods with your community members, with your friends, 
and showing your stands of whatever it is. There's a big issue with the over-harvesting and poaching of ginseng, and a lot of people who have ginseng stands on their land really keep it under wraps, and for good reason. But knowing your neighbors and telling your neighbors that you do have stands of ginseng might actually help protect your crop as opposed to uh, hurting it. You get to know these people and they become your confidants and they will tell you when somebody strange is walking your land. I've just heard heartbreaking stories, as I'm sure everyone has, of retirement plans of ginseng that have gone two weeks before harvest. You know, people know what's growing around them that are in the ginseng trade. And it's something that um, that needs to be dealt with as this, this project grows. None of these other herbs have the value that ginseng does, but again, ginseng's not the most important herb. Part of my motivation for doing this is creating community medicine chests for areas in Appalachian so that, you know, as these herbs are grown and processed, you're going to know more about these plants. You're going to know the medicine of them, and I'm not saying become an herbalist or anything like that, but these herbs are going to become a part of your family after a while. You know, some of them take three, four, five, seven years to grow. You're going to know these plants well and their life cycles, and you're going to know when they go to seed so that you can collect that seed and plant more. You're going to see the beneficial insects that are pollinating them throughout the summertime. Insects that you have never seen before are going to come around on your land and pollinate those herbs. So this is a really exciting, eye-opening project. And Again, this is a take your kid to work kind of project. You know, this is something you should do with your children because this is our culture. This is something that we need to embrace. Absolutely. And another example, and maybe we can talk a little bit more about market with this example, is when I was pregnant uh, with my third child, I had an old injury that I needed healed. And I was working with a midwife at the time who also knew herbs, and she recommended I take Solomon Seal. And we could not find it. She didn't have any. She went to her regular source. They were all out. They couldn't source it. From their source, it took her literally a couple of months to find me one bottle of Solomon Seal tincture. That's how in demand, I guess it was, and out of stock, and we had to wait for it. So let's talk market. What what are we looking at? What kind of market is it? Is it a, a very demanding market or? Personally, I feel it is, and I feel like it's growing, because I know in, in the past, just the few medicinal herbs and things that I have grown, and if, if I don't use them all, then I've got people waiting in the wings saying, if you're not going to use it, can I buy it from you? And like what you just said with the Solomon Seal, with Mountain Rose Herbs, I know there's been times when I've needed to order things from them that I may not be growing or can't wildcraft, and they're out of stock. If you go on the more reliable places to buy your herbs and things, you'll see out of stock, out of stock, out of stock. So it's not just the herbalist. It's just regular people out there that like yourself that are learning things that will help and so yes it's a huge market and I feel that the more we make things available to people out there and and this is not just a U.S. thing we're talking about Central Appalachia is a unique growing environment for these herbs and like David mentioned where we live is similar to the area in China that grows the Chinese herbs 
a lot of times things that come out of China are contaminated. Sometimes, or I heard you mention, mention David, that sometimes it's even sheetrock dust that are added into that. So you don't know what you're getting. It's not just a market here in the United States that we would be taking care of. We're talking about worldwide, you know, that the growers here would be supplying for a worldwide demand. It's no different. The herb hubs are going to be no different in my mind, and correct me if I'm wrong on this because I get so excited about this, I can't see straight. It's no different than in the Midwest where you've got farmers harvesting thousands of acres of corn and soybeans. Where do they take all those thousands of tons of beans and corn? They take it to the co-op where they unload it into silos or they load it into trains or semi-trucks to take it then to on out to the market. So finally, I see herbalists and forest farmers having a co-op, having the herb hubs that they can take their product to where it's processed and cleaned and packaged and all those, if, we, if you want to do that, then it goes on out. The other thing I love about having the herb hubs and the, and the dryers and things like you had mentioned, Kelly, we live in a very humid environment, you know, so for my own use for the herbs that I would like to keep if I'm growing in bulk, then I know that I'm going to have a good product then that I can create my salves and tinctures and teas and things with, you know, so I can take them to the dryers and the herb hubs and get them processed and then bring them back, you know, if I want to use those for my own use or whatever else. And I would say, though, in addition to that large market, that building up again the local supply of these products and making them available to practitioners, you know, once they're out there and people know that it's a quality product that's been dried in a consistent way, we really believe that people will pay a premium for those herbs. And so that's what we're trying to build up as well. A lot of these herbs, I feel like the prices that are out there right now don't reflect the value of these plants. And so part of what we're trying to do is to get a premium for growers who are willing to go the extra step, um, watching their populations and keeping records and possibly getting um, a certification to say that they've done all this. We've talked about some of the tricky parts of deciding to use herbs for healing is sometimes you don't know what you're getting. You don't know if you're getting the medicinal part of the plant or you're getting the part that's less medicinal or if the plant was organically grown or not. And I know in the United States, the Food and Drug Administration doesn't do a whole lot to regulate herbs and the use of herbs. And so people tend to see it like food. You know, oh, I'm just going to put these capsules in my mouth and, oh, it's not working. I'm going to take a little more and not paying attention to dosage or where they're getting them from. So let's talk a little bit maybe about what the Herb Hub can help you do in regards to having value added to your product and making it a legit thing. Yeah, I guess I'd like to bring up then certification for these herbs. Most people are probably familiar with organic certification, which is a third-party label that growers can get that says these crops were grown at a certain standard without chemicals, and they're paid a premium for those vegetables. So there's 
a parallel certification called Forest Grown Verification. This is out of Penn State and it's fairly new. It's a new label that we're working with them to get growers signed up under this program so that we can market, again, market the herbs to buyers who care about the record keeping and about the quality. So it's very new. We're still hoping to work everything out that it will be a success. We're very optimistic. I think this is a good time to point out that if you're not seeing results with an herb that you're using, it might be time to question the quality in it. And if we develop a product together and we come together as as a co-op, a hub, a coalition, and create this name for herbs grown in central Appalachia, that they are a quality product and that they will work, unlike some of the really cheap ones that you can access at the grocery store, <laughs> that will create its own demand. To me, that's really exciting. It's definitely going to be a long-term project. You know, we, we talk about these, these perennial plants, the plants that come back year after year. They take several years before they reach maturity, and so this is something to plan ahead to. This could be something, if you were planning on to, say, retire in a couple of years, these herbs don't take very much maintenance once they're in the ground, other than observation and maybe the occasional weeding if it becomes an issue. You can totally have a full-time job and still be growing forest-grown herbs and even some field-grown herbs. You know, a lot of my experiences with Chinese herbs are field-grown herbs. And so if you have a little patch of sunlight, there are some herbs that do just extremely well, and they're high-dollar herbs that can be part of this project as well. Yeah, one of the things that I I grew was fennel, and I did, like, lasagna beds because I didn't have a tiller. (laughs) So I would actually grow huge amounts of vegetables in lasagna beds and raised beds that I made myself with a matting. (laughs) But the fennel grew so huge and got down Mm -hmm. in so deep when a friend asked for a plant, I couldn't get it out myself. He had to come (laughs) and help me because it had gotten in so deep and it was just amazing and it Mm -hmm. smelled so wonderful. So so these are accessible plants. They didn't take a lot for me to get so many of these herbs started that I've grown. You spoke earlier, Kelly, about your father and the strip mine land, and then David mentioning about the actual field-grown herbs, some of the Chinese or some of the herbs that need to be grown in a more sunny location. This is another thing is I'm very passionate about is uh, part of the land that I own is strip mine land. And even though that's supposedly reclaimed, there is zero topsoil on that strip mine land. So I've been working with some folks at Appalachian Voices, and specifically Adam Wells, and he is really big into solar uh, systems. And I feel that this is another thing that we could look into because We're in a period in Appalachia with the decline of our coal industry that I feel like we're in a huge position of transition right now, more than ever before ever in our history. And I feel that we should try really hard to take advantage of this transitioning time. It seems like here in Central Appalachia, we're always about 50 years behind everybody else. You know, (laughs) just we never get caught up. So... When I think about Adam and the work he's doing with solar and then with the things with the the herbs and the forest farming that are coming up, I see let's use 
the old ways that we know that here are our culture, our heritage here in Appalachia, let's use those old ways that are deep rooted inside of us. And then let's blend those with the new technology. So instead of just getting us caught up here in central Appalachia to where everybody else has been, which then will put us another 50 years behind by the time we get caught up, let's leapfrog it. I'd like to see us here in central Appalachia taking hold of this transition time and let's be the cutting edge on bringing in new sustainable and I know people probably cringe a little bit when they hear that word but it just means an economy that we can rely on and especially with new energy sources other than coal which coal is always going to be important here metallurgical coal it's pretty much only here that we can have that so we will always have that but let's embrace the new things like the solar which then brings me back to the strip mine land and being a farmer using hoop houses or high tunnels is another word they're basically unheated greenhouses right now we've got one installed on the strip mine land and we're going to be bringing in actually soil and debris from a logging yard to build built beds in the high tunnel to where then we can do cultivation of like ginseng roots instead of like the plastic that you usually see overgrowing like a high tunnel or a greenhouse. These are unheated greenhouses. There'll be actually shade cloth over them. So then I would like to use, I'm going to be talking to Adam Wells at Appalachian Voices and other people on getting some uh, maybe solar electric up there things that we might need, which I think that's a great way to use the strip mine land and actually reclaim them back to healthy soil, be able to use them more productively. David was talking about that sometimes, and it's true that these, uh, a lot of the medicinal herbs, it's way many years down the road. But if we use the strip mine land, put in high tunnels, growing tunnels, or actually cultivation and propagation and things, in the meantime, we can sell rootlets. We can sell one and two year old rootlets if we're growing them in the high tunnels and cultivating them for other people. That's a money source. While the uh, ginseng is growing, you know, six, seven, how many years you want it to grow in the woodland, you can gather the seed after about year three or four, David. That, that would be best. Yeah. yeah. Starts gathering the seed and selling the seed. Yeah, I pay $150 for quality ginseng seed right now. Those are other being a, a farmer that that's another way that they you can earn money through the years while you're waiting for the, and then you're constantly doing staggered plantings of things. And so eventually it's it's a sustainable income so you don't harvest everything that you you're at constantly growing and planting and harvesting over and over so it's a build up so eventually then you have that fairly stable income. Let's use this period of transition and actually reclaim our strip mine land and bring back the forest to where it was growing what it used to naturally, whether it's through logging or strip mining or over harvesting and wild, you know, digging of, of the medicinals that have grown here forever. To all the career coal miners out there, I just want to say thank you so much for your service. A lot of people take it for granted what you do and what you sacrifice to bring us energy on a daily basis. 
you are in our thoughts and we're, we're really here to help you. So please take that to heart. And um, if you're interested in this project, please don't hesitate to, to contact us. In these uncertain economic times, a lot of the question is, they hear about things like this, they're like, that sounds really interesting, or I know a little bit about herbs, my mamaw taught me, my papaw taught me, and they think, well, I would like to get into that, but what's the cost? So to get started, to look at more, to attend a workshop, are there any costs to use the hub or attend workshops? The hub is being developed right now, so it's actually going to be completed in late August or September. So we're working out all the details about what the fee structure would look like and if there would be a fee if you're part of the network. There's fees associated with getting this forest-grown verification, similar to organic, but we do have cost share right now to help people get started because it's a, a trial period. We have some workshops that are um, almost always free to attend. And then we'll have a multi-day training session in the Norton, Virginia area sometime in September, which we'll be able to bring in some really great speakers. And that cost is kept to a minimum um, to attend. So right. less than $50 probably. And one thing I noticed, our listening area covers <laughs> quite a range. So we, you can hear us in Virginia, Kentucky, West Virginia, and some parts of Tennessee, and anywhere in the world via the internet. <laughs> so um, when I looked at the Appalachian Sustainable Development page, I noticed that it said, what was it, northeastern Tennessee mm-hmm. and southwestern Virginia. Mm-hmm. So if we're here in eastern Kentucky and we want to do this, can we drive to Duffield? We go to Norton and, and yeah. places like that all the time. So. Well, we're excited to be here across the state line because you're actually not that far from Duffield. So definitely, you know, officially we work in those areas, but we're working more and more across the state line. And this particular food hub project in Appalachian Harvest is about developing food corridors. So trying to connect people in West Virginia and allowing them to transport their produce down to the Duffield hub to access these markets. So how can we all work together efficiently to get what we're growing out there. So again, let's go ahead and give the contact information for folks that would like to be involved. Okay, um, yeah, you can contact me, Emily Lockneed at Appalachian Sustainable Development at um, 276-623-1121 and also go to AppalachianForestFarmers.org is the website for the Appalachian Beginning Forest Farmer Coalition, where you'll find a lot of really good information about all the things we've talked about today. It's a really nice website I visited and yeah. uh, took a look. So it's it's easy to navigate. You'll find all you need there. And I'll make sure also that I include this contact information when we post this show on the WMMT website. So you'll be able to click live links to all of these websites and I'll also include the phone number on that as well. Are we good? Yeah. Good. <laughs> all right, I would like to thank Emily Locknick and Tammy Owens and David Grimsley for joining me today on Mountain Talk Monday. We've been talking about 
forest farming and a new herb hub in the works that's going to be in Duffield, Virginia. And don't forget, you can find us on the web at www.wmmt.org where this show will be posted and you can listen if you've only caught a bit of it. And remember also, Mountain Talk Monday is available as a podcast that you can download from your favorite podcast app. So for all of you out there in listener land, thank you for listening. This year's Growing Appalachia Conference will be held from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. on Saturday, February 25th at the Heinemann Settlement School's Maystone Building. People attending can gain some practical skills and knowledge so that they can find ways to stay and thrive in the mountains by making their own jobs or saving money through small-scale farming, energy efficiency, and renewables. For more information, kftc.org backslash growing or Jesse Skaggs, 606-263-4982.